You are listening to America's Healthcare Challenge on News Talk 1290, News Talk 1290KOIL.com, and the News Talk 1290 mobile app. Once again, here's Sean McGuire. Welcome back to the program. Great to have you here. We're taking a look at the EpiPen controversy this week, and coming up at the bottom half of the show, we'll be taking uh, a deeper look at the issue of the largest insurer in our in our neck of the woods pulling out of our marketplace. But I wanted to share with you a uh, a piece of information that I found welcoming back in to the program promote John and TJ Tedesco from Vivio Health as well as Trent Majors here on the show uh, promote last segment identified a, a great point in that um, especially with these people moving back and forth between uh, the exchange or on a self-insured plan somebody's going to have to pay for it and I found an article on the Kaiser Family Found- Foundation on our point of, of, of the EpiPen because Medicare is a huge payer in the marketplace, and that's obviously funded by taxpayers, spent $87.9 billion, or, or million dollars, excuse me, on EpiPen just for Medicare users. That was in 2014, and the numbers had continued to rise over time. And so, uh, gentlemen, I want to welcome you back to the show. Uh, do you think Americans are understand how serious this problem is and especially how it could impact them from their pocketbook from a tax standpoint if we don't get this under control? You, you know, know, I... I th- Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the answer to that is absolutely no. And And what Americans should be thinking about is the perspective of we spend just south of $3 trillion on health care, and it's growing, and it's about a little over 18% of our GDP. To put that into perspective, if we were to look at world GDPs, this is higher than the GDP of France, which is number five. And that's just what Americans spend on health care. And remember, we only have $300 million out of you know, a little bit north of 7 billion people on the planet. So when you look at that, you realize that we're spending a great deal of money, and, and we would argue unnecessarily, on, on, a, on an area that we don't need to. And it's, it, it definitely is breaking the back, and it's, and it's breaking the back of the average American who's losing their job, uh, which is going to Mexico or somewhere else because of health care arbitrage alone. TJ, did you have a thought on that point? Yeah, um, right now, in, in general, your, your promote is absolutely correct. Uh, the you know most people don't realize that America spends 17, 18 percent of its GDP on healthcare. The next closest co- uh, country in the world, I think, is Great Britain in the 11 or 12 percent range. So we are 50 percent more uh, of spend as a percentage of our GDP than anybody else. But if you take a look at outcomes, we are ranked about 30th in terms of of, uh, efficacy. So there's a real disconnect between the spend that America spends on healthcare and the uh, and the actual results. But however, we're we're in a little bit of a window right now. And and very frankly, we have uh, we have the myelin EpiPen situation uh, to to thank if that's the right word to thank for it. Uh, because right now, it, it, uh, what has this done? This outrage, which you know is felt coast to coast, is is being reflected in in Congress. And and you know, there's certainly a role for Congress to uh, to play. And and so, I think it's Tammy Duckworth um, introduced the Fair Accountability and Innovation 
Research Drug Pricing Act of 2016, I think a week ago or so. And um, but if we take a look at what she, what they what Congress is trying to do, it's trying to force drug makers to rationalize any price increase over 10 percent. Uh, and giving at least 30 days notice of, of the price increase. So that's fine, and, and we certainly applaud the effort. However, it's not really, uh, you know, in, in, in all due respect, it's not, it's not addressing the, the, the source of the problem, and the source is the structure of, of how drugs are transacted in America. And as, and as I think we've made clear now, drugs are a very significant portion of our overall spend. So the question we, and we're not alone, and there's other companies doing this as well, but the question is, how do we, instead of you know, settle for a 10% increase, which is what this, uh, this Drug Pricing Act is trying to do, you know, we're, we're, uh, we, speaking just for ourselves, we're trying to deconstruct why it's this way and what, what can we do to actually lower the cost. And I think that's a, a, a fundamental difference. And one of the things uh, to, that you can use uh, to lower the cost is um, is the power of data. W- would you not say? Could you uh, talk to talk to us a little bit uh, about um, some of the ways that you guys are able to use data to to improve uh, improve things for folks out there? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you know. I think uh, one of the terms that we use um, in the industry uses is evidence based medicine. And if you think about it for a second, it's sort of an oxymoron, right? Because all of us assume that when we are practicing medicine, that there is evidence behind it, right? It doesn't have to be explicitly stated that this is evidence versus this is, you know, uh, this is a non-evidence-based medicine, right? But imagine that today, if you actually look at, well, how do we practice medicine and why are we talking about evidence? Because you find out as you look under the hood for the first time that actually the way we practice medicine often doesn't have any evidence in how we think about data and the use of it and and no evidence that any of these things work. And by the way, I mean, uh, if you were to start, one of the areas that we focus on is in the area of drugs. So we think one of the most important questions, you know, all of us can look at the price of something and say, hey, the price is going up. But the thing that we're not able to really assess is a much more important question of, look, there's this $50,000 a year therapy you know, that, uh, that uh, someone is paying for, does it actually work? And I think that what we've discovered is, as we, we go out and talk to employers and others, is that there seems to be a disconnect. And that disconnect stems from the fact that when the assumption that we make as consumers is that when the FDA has approved something, that it works. Now, that's a fair assumption, but I think the problem with that assumption is that the FDA's standard or what they mean by it works is completely different than when we think of it works and what, we're, what it works means. Let me give you an example. Uh, you know, Humira is a very common drug that, uh, you know, now we see television ads for it. It's become a household world word. It's about a $50,000 a year therapy, you know, for RNA. And if you were to go back, I mean, all of us assume, hey, if you're paying $50,000 for something, that, uh, you know, it works, right? And that's the reason why people are prescribing it and someone's paying $50,000 for this drug. But if you go back and pull the clinical trial data on Humira, you'll find something interesting. One is that the FDA standard for whether Humira worked in the drug trials was a based on what's called an ACR test, which measures your joints, the swollen joints, other things. So it's an objective test to figure out, are you, you know, how is the disease progressing? 
And if you look at the data behind it, you'll find that the, the drug Humira was approved based on a 25% improvement over the baseline. And in most cases, the baseline was doing nothing. So then, number one, you can step back and ask a really interesting question of, wow, we're paying $50,000 a year for a drug that improved the symptoms by 25%, which meant that if you had eight swollen joints, now you have six swollen joints, and as a result, that's worth $50,000. And so that's a really good question that we should be able to ask, because what that gets us to is asking the question of value-based medicine. What's the value we're getting? And are we okay paying $50,000 more than the $1,000 therapy to get 25% better? But here's an even more interesting data point there. If you were to pull the data on Humira, you'd see that 19% of the people who took in the clinical trial who took sugar water also improved by 25% without buying, you know, being on the $50,000 a year drug which is mind-boggling and scary when you think about the fact that almost 20% of the people, all we had to do was give them sugar water rather than a $50,000 drug, and they did just as well. And then if you look at that a step deeper, you find that about 50% of the people who took Humira achieved what's called in clinical trial parlance the endpoint of a 25% improvement. So if you factor out the 20% that improved on sugar water, basically what you're saying is that about 3 out of 10 people will achieve the endpoint of a 25% improvement. But what that also means that, is that 7 out of 10 people either would improve on sugar water or not, or the drug does not work for them at all. And so that raises a really interesting question. It's not a the drug sort of works. It's that it doesn't even meet the FDA's definition of working for half the people who are on the drug. And if you look at today's model, the way drugs are prescribed Drugs are prescribed in a way that the assumption is that the drug, quote-unquote, works. Not that we're trying to figure out which three out of ten people does this drug work for. And why that becomes important is that, well, that, that changes the way that we should think about when a doctor prescribes something. Because they actually don't know the answer of, are we in the bin of the three out of ten for whom that drug works, or the seven out of ten for whom the drug doesn't work, Right. And in the same way, when pharmacy benefit managers and other entities say that, hey, there's only one drug that you can take, by definition, we already know if that one drug, for example, in that class is Humira, that it doesn't work for 7 out of 10 people. And so what we're saying is that this whole model is not geared towards helping the patient. So not only are we paying way too much for these drugs, we're not even sure that it actually benefits the people who are on these drugs. And so this is the area where, you know, what Vivio is taking a stance on is saying, hey, we have data, and we should be collecting data that helps us answer that question. And we can. This is not an unachievable problem. This is a problem that we know exactly how to solve, and we could change that to say, not only do we not have to overpay for these things, but why don't we discover, you know, does this drug actually work for you? And by the way, all of these specialty medications, you can ask anyone who's on them, have severe side effects. So imagine you're one of the 7 out of 10 people that's on the $50,000 a year drug, and there's really no net benefit, and you're now having severe side effects, thinking that it's improving something else. Wow. That's, uh, so go ahead, TJ. And by the way, we got a caller. Do you guys uh, mind if we, we get that caller in? They might have, I think they have a question or a statement for what we've been visiting about. So, TJ, can you go uh, ahead great. and make your point, and then we'll bring the caller in? 
Okay, my point is is really quick. Uh, Promote gave an example on efficacy for one drug, Humira. He did say that that uh, the 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 you know those those dynamics are broader than that. Uh, I'd just like to throw out a quote by Dr. Alan Rosas, who is the senior vice president of genetics research at one of the uh, one of the drug companies, GlaxoSmithKline, and and his quote is: "The vast majority of drugs." More than 90% only work in 30 to or 50% of the people. Drugs out there on the market work, but they don't work in everybody, which is precisely our point. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great uh, point uh, there, uh, TJ. Let's go to Patrick here on America's Healthcare Challenge. Patrick, how you doing? Good. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was in the insurance business uh, 31 years, independent agent. During that period of time, let me share with you one of the biggest problems that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, my father, who's deceased, sat on the board of directors of Mutual United of Omaha uh, when they were the largest health insurance company in the world, okay? Number one, he had a standing appointment with the president of the American Medical Association uh, twice a year. He would come here to Omaha. Dad would go out to Sacramento. He told him point blank over a couple of martinis and his professional opinion. Now, this is the president of the AMA, that up to 70% of all surgical procedures are questionable. Okay, they're questionable. You're not going to put a cap on these costs. It, it, it's a runaway train. The, the Prudential, the New York Life, and the Hancock, when they were selling health insurance, when I was with them in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and around the millennium here, got out of the health insurance business, as did Mutual of Omaha, because they were losing their butts. They were losing millions of dollars. You can do all the data collecting you want and this and that. The government has taken this over, and the taxpayers are going to pay for it, Okay. All right. Thanks for your statement there, Patrick. Um, gentlemen, do you have any uh, reaction to that? You know, Patrick, I think that you you know you make a fair point, right? In that, the a couple of comments. One is that there are analogies to what you're describing, exactly as you described. Whether it's an unnecessary surgery that doesn't have that has shaky evidence, or it's a fifty thousand dollar a year drug. You're, you're absolutely right. Those are identical situations. There's no difference between the two. It's, I think fundamentally the problem is that it's not just the government's fault, because I would agree with you that there clearly a lot of these issues have been caused by our public policy. And that's where, you know, as TJ pointed out, we think the folks on Capitol Hill are doing a disservice to the American population, because even in the EpiPen case, this is a let's shame Heather Brash, the CEO for Mylan versus let's understand why this is occurring and the role of government is to fix the systems that resulted in that versus us shaming Heather Brash, which is not a useful exercise. And so it takes away sort of the direction of what we should be doing, which is fixing the system, which is the role of government. And I think it's a fair point, Patrick, that you brought up that that's the case. But that being said, in America, We've seen a lot of change as a result of the public sector, of, of, of private companies, I mean, that have changed the way many of these large economic systems have worked. Even if we look at things like travel and other – travel is also a regulated industry, right? And we still suffer from some of the regula regulatory issues around things like travel. But 30 years ago, we saw exactly the same sorts of issues in the travel industry. When we look at financial services, we saw exactly the same thing. And so all of those 
we could have had exactly the same viewpoint 30 years ago saying, hey, this can never be fixed. It's our government's fault. We shouldn't, you know, it, it, there's nothing we can do. And that's where we'd say, you know, it seems like a monumental task to fix this. But we think that just based on the previous experience, we can make inroads. But those inroads also have to start with the consumers in America saying, I've had enough of people, you know, selling me snake oil, whether that's the government, whether that's health insurers, or whether that's providers and doctors or drug companies. And if we don't take responsibility for understanding why something is being done for us or to us, well, you're right, it's going to be a hard thing. But that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to be consumers asking those hard questions. Exactly. Well, we're up against the timeout, gentlemen. Do you guys have any final thoughts, uh, each of you, before we uh, jump off here? Uh, other than we really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you, nothing for me. What about you, Promote? Absolutely. You know, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat. And, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if, if any of you out there, you know, are listening have got further questions or want further detail, we're, we're uh, always available to chat and Great. Uh, share our insights. And your website was viviohealth.com, is that right? That is correct. That okay. is correct. Okay, great. Yeah, check great. it out. It's a, it's a good-looking website, and you'll learn a little bit more about what they do. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us here on the show. We hope you can come back again. Um, always great to have you here, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. Great to hear from you guys. Take care. All right. Thank you very much. All right. That was uh, Promote John and TJ Tedesco from Vivio Health. When we come back, more on the breaking news of the largest insurer pulling out of the marketplace. Trent and I are going to break that down and share uh, our thoughts on what we can do to address this problem. You're not going to want to miss it next.